Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Today, in episode number 61, I am joined once again by Dr. Doug Jowdy, the renowned sports psychologist who works with champion athletes as well as older athletes like you and me who seek a path to higher athletic performance today while also transitioning toward a path of health and athletic longevity. In episode 60, Dr. Jowdy spoke about the need for and the challenges of strengthening our psychological fitness to make better decisions serving our quest for fitness today and health during a long life. Today, Doug has returned to provide more tips for you and me to use to strengthen our psychology to make us stronger mentally and optimizing this balance between longevity and athletic performance. This is the second of three episodes I've recorded with Dr. Jowdy, and I hope you'll listen to them all to learn as much as I did. All right. Let's talk to Dr. Jowdy. Dr. Doug Jowdy, welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Joe, it's great to be back. And Glenn, it's good to meet you. Um, as you know, I'm really passionate about this uh, subject matter. And it takes me back to the mid-70s when I got involved in this area. So uh, I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. Great to have you on board. Yeah, and uh, welcome back, Glenn. We'll uh, dig into uh, your recovery here in just a bit, but uh, good to have you back on the show. Yes. Uh, Today, we will be continuing our conversation from our first podcast with Doug, who is a sports psychologist, uh, who everyone who listened to the first episode would know. And if you haven't listened to that, then you definitely should. But Doug and I, on that episode, we talked about exercise addiction and uh, forced withdrawal due to injury and uh, really leading up to a discussion around the transition that athletes have to go through as they transition from high-end competition to using athletics for health purposes, for fun, for happiness, as opposed to their personal identity and their ego. Glenn, you were not with us this last time. And on that last episode, I was brave and I was forced. No, that's not (laughs) true. I volunteered to reveal my secrets to our friendly head shrinker here. And (laughs) today we're going to see how brave you are. Oh, Joe, no problem. Because I've <laughs> I've been I've been down the road that Doug's been down. I know it intimately. I know Do the you? feelings of when the season ends, how depressed I would get, and I never understood why until it, it dawned on me that my racing was my identity. Yeah. Thankfully, yeah. I've made the transition, and I've transitioned successfully to the point where I now it's not such a big deal. Of course, yeah. it does affect my races performance wise. Because in a race, I might say, Ah, I don't really care about that race anyway, and I won't win, which is okay. Right. Right. Yeah, if you have to compete against people who are psychologically <laughs> damaged and exercising too hard, then sometimes they can do better, at least for a while. Yeah, it's okay. All right. I'll let them win. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Doug, last time, the part of our conversation that I found the most meaningful to me personally was the discussion about mental toughness, this idea of willpower, of my forcing myself to behave in ways that other parts of me don't want. And of course, the the idea of mental toughness suggests that there is a thing called mental weakness, which of course sounds so bad to me and my psyche that I fear it. I don't dare let it have a foothold in me. And and it was interesting to me, our discussion that uh, helped me to see how psychological flexibility or a psychological fitness, I think was the phrase you used, is more important than mental toughness. Uh, unfortunately, we, you know, we only had an hour and we ran out of time. And so you weren't able to really get into a lot of details. But today, what I'm hoping that we're going to get to be able to do is uh, get more of a deep dive into your suggestions for the older athlete to find that sweet spot of exercising for health and pleasure, but not for self-identity or to hide from stresses of life all of which seem to lead to uh, addictions and self-defeating behaviors. And even though we did touch on that a little bit, let's start over on that point. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us your thoughts on how the older athlete can make this transition? Well, I have uh, reflected on the first podcast where I believe we laid down the foundation for the intensity of the struggle that a competitive athlete 
even though they're not sponsored, pro, endorsed, um, getting prepared for the Olympic trials, will have when their bike is calling their name to go out for an 80-mile ride and they know there is an erector muscle in their low back that's strained, you know, or they need to attend to a family issue, or they might have a gastroc that's strained, or they know their coach has said, don't ride today, do something to cross train. Right. But that bike is calling their name. And to resist that drink, quote unquote, is close to impossible. So emotion or passion will override reason and logic. So that's what we were talking about. But to qualify, I have about 18 different uh, steps people can take to help with that uh, conflict and to be able to separate themselves from the over-involvement, the over-attachment, um, if you want to call it addiction, to yeah. pushing too hard when everything points into the direction of moderation. Well, um, I, so I don't want to sure interrupt. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to interrupt mm -hmm. you on that, but I, I just wanted to. I was just going to say, I'm hoping that it's not 18 steps that you've got to take in the proper order, and you can't skip any. And but there's rather 18 things you can do, and you can do the ones that you think you can a person can manage and they can maybe hold some out for another time and that sort of thing. Is it as, is it as terribly complicated as I'm afraid of, or is it easier like I'm hoping? Um, well, it all depends on the, let's say the intensity of the conflict. Um, so if we're talking about a migraine headache, you can't treat it with 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. Okay. So if we're talking about an athlete that has a full-blown addiction, you know, um, the intervention or the help has to be equivalent to the migraine headache. Yeah, I so, guess that makes sense. Yeah, but if it's an athlete that, you know, can take it or leave it, you know, feels, um, you know, their hamstring is strained, you know, and they can easily say, you know, I'm going to walk, I'm going to ice, I'm going to take some ibuprofen and see how it feels tomorrow. Well, this full menu really doesn't apply. Okay. So it's not a one size fits all, but I'll lay out all the possibilities. Awesome. And this is where, depending on the person's struggle, they might need guidance from a coach that's savvy with this or a sports psychologist. Okay. Well, good. Great. I look forward to it. Let's dive in. Okay. A lot of these are taken from my book. So okay. um, to cut to the chase, reading the book will um, be the best way to familiarize yourself and to train mentally because in essence, we're talking about a physical habit. Yeah. Okay. Somebody's developed this muscle that is more, more, more. No pain, no gain related. Yeah. And their muscle to do moderation or balance or value sofa training or rest and recovery or patience is very weak. Okay. So they have to strengthen that muscle. So what I'm talking about is strengthening that muscle. So okay. you get a competitive person, usually patience isn't a strong suit. Yeah. That's usually a weak muscle with somebody that's competitive. So when I'm working with them, we're trying to strengthen the patient's muscle. So it starts with, as I mentioned last time, is being clear about what your ultimate goal is. And as you talked about your audience, their ultimate goal at this time is going to Europe and as opposed to driving around the mountains, taking a bike ride. Yeah. Okay, that's what we're talking about. We're not necessarily talking about riding PRs every time you race. Okay. Right, not so as a goal, that's right. Right. So the person is being really clear what their motives and intentions are of spending time, which is our most valuable commodity, on their bike. Because as time goes on, it becomes more valuable. And... It's normal when you have been riding for 10, 15, 20, 30 years because there is a biological basis. When you get on that bike, 
you get neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, neuroepinephrine, and endorphins. And other activities in the game of life pale into comparison. Okay, you go to a movie, you go to a play, you're not going to get that level of endorphin rush. So physiologically, there's a reason why you'd rather be on the bike and do more versus less. Psychologically, there's a reason because when you have a history, it makes you feel good about yourself. You feel accomplished. You know, it doing chores around the house or going to visit a friend, you know, pales into comparison of the feeling you get when you've gone up these hills and you can post on social media that your heart rate was this and, you know, all those things that fall under the competitive umbrella. As we talked about and you shared um, in detail, the social benefits. Right. You know, yeah, you're definitely describing why it's so hard to give up. And, um, and we're going to get into the how to give it up. Right. 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 Yeah. I'm just laying the foundation to normalize why this is so difficult. Okay. You know, um, because some of the people may not have, uh, listened to the last podcast and I didn't put it out this specifically in one soundbite. Okay. You know, And the other thing that is very underestimated is the existential piece of this and that being on the bike or run or whatever the activity is a spiritual experience. You feel one with nature because of the neurotransmitters, because of the joy you experience, it provides meaning. And having meaning in life is one of the most profound emotions that provides happiness, satisfaction, joy, and we can go down the list. I mean, that is what is correlated with emotional health, physical health, um, high immune system, meaning. And we talk in psychology about getting meaning from human relationships. However, this, this, is not a phone. This is a person that yeah. gets in the way of human relationships. Oh, People are developing emotional intimacy with their phones and becoming more emotionally intimate with technology. The slave has become a master. And interfering with people sitting, looking at each other in the eye, talking deeply about life. So being on a bike provides that. Well, and these sound like things, these, these reasons why competing and exercising very hard uh, and camaraderie during these activities sound like things that would be, you can't give them up and still have a good life. So, Presumably, you're going to tell us about ways that you don't have to give it up. You just have to transfer that in some way as a part of this transition away from, you know, doing the maximum competing to the death uh, isn't, isn't the only way to get at these things that provide so much meaning and pleasure in life. Um, Hopefully not. Um, The same thing applies to work. Because there are a lot of people, and the word work work addiction, workaholism is a dirty word because Mm -hmm. um, it is socially acceptable when you ask somebody, how are you doing? You're working a lot? And you say, oh, no, I've cut down to four days a week, four hours a day. Um, I'm enjoying having time off. They look at you like, what? Slacker. You know, I just I sat with my financial advisor and we ran the numbers and that that extra four hundred thousand dollars I would make isn't going to make a difference in my retirement. And it isn't worth working five days a week. Okay. And uh, secretly they're thinking, how do you do that? How do you not go in on Friday? How do you not work after five o'clock? You know, it, it applies to so many things. Um, but 
the big motive that I feel in the first step to enjoying uh, riding a bike or exercising and going in the direction of taking that trip when you're 80 through Italy or Austria, whatever that might be, is working on becoming psychologically skilled through exercise. And in the chapter, a psychologically skilled athlete, I list 30 different characteristics of a psychologically skilled athlete, which you can apply to a person, a psychologically skilled person. So you're actually using sport as a way to become psychologically skilled. And I won't go through those 30 characteristics. We don't have the time, but people can look at that. So as opposed to trying to increase our anaerobic threshold, um, VO2 max, power output, you know, improving your ability to go up hills, et cetera, all those kinds of physical skills to put points on the board, to look good, to feed the ego. You are partially riding the bike to develop emotionally and personally and psychologically. And the paradox is if you do that, you will ride faster you will become a better athlete and win more and win more consistently. And I know that based upon anecdotal evidence from doing this since 1985, along with the theory and research um, that I've read. So I'm not just talking off of a cereal box or a fortune cookie, you know, um, or this woo stuff we talked about. So that is what people have um, their focus set on is becoming as psychologically skilled. In the 300 pages of the book, describe how to become psychologically skilled. So it is there. It's laid out. There is a training program, just like a coach would give you a training program, how to win the triple bypass. Right. I lay out a training program to answer your question. Uh Okay, Doug, so that Joe. I don't have to expire here. <laughs> Let's get into the how. I, I realize that I, I, we can buy your book and we can learn a lot more than we're going to learn here in the, in the 40 minutes we have left uh, in our podcast. But if we don't get started on the solutions, I'm going to hold my breath until I pass out. So you, 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 I can hold my breath for two minutes. Ready? <gasps> Okay, the, the solution is knowing what you're working towards, just like the solution in physical training is knowing what you're working towards. And psychologically, you're working towards becoming more psychologically skilled to develop those 30 characteristics. Okay, how do you make that happen? It starts with goal setting. That's the chapter, the North Star. The North Star is what you hope for. Your hope or desire is to win the triple bypass. It is a hope or a North Star because you don't have control over the weather. You don't have control over equipment failure. You don't have control over your competition. So a goal is what you do on a daily basis to achieve and increase the probability the North Star will happen. So you read the chapter, The North Star, which is one of the longest chapters in the book that describes how to set goals effectively, because most people don't set goals effectively, and you're setting goals to achieve these 30 psychological characteristics. And it would take me several hours to talk about how to achieve those goals. There's no shortcut. This idea of mental training and changing thought processes is more difficult than training to become a physically proficient cycler. Um, that is why as a psychologist, I know what's involved in behavior change and being able to look at your bike when it's calling you and say, I'm going to stay with my training program. And when you set goals, for example, one of the psychological characteristics of a gold medal mind athlete is patience. Having a patience muscle and valuing recovery and regeneration. So that is your goal. However, the obstacle to that goal is going to be insecurity and feelings of inadequacy because those in fear are going to override 
the patience and logic and push the person. So the goal then becomes working on the feelings of inadequacy and the insecurity and the emptiness that they need to be filled up with that ride. Now that's a tough one and that's what most people don't know what to do and they bump up against, I feel empty, I feel guilty. I feel weak. I feel like a failure. I feel mentally weak if I don't do that. And that, if it's a migraine headache, requires professional help. It's just like the workaholic that after the kids go to bed, they can't resist getting on the computer as opposed to spending time with their partner because that's the only time they have during the day to spend quality time. So that's how you set that goal, but then you look at the obstacle, what's going to get in the way, and that becomes your goal. And that's what gets at the heart of resisting that leads to overtraining. You know, what is required to find balance is doing recovery, acupuncture, rolfing, dry needling, massage, um, contrast baths. That takes time. And when you get older in life, when you have other responsibilities, something has to give. And you have to decide, is it going to be family time? Is it going to be work time? Or is it going to be training time? And the reality is, it has to be training time. That's why you value rest and recovery and going to appointments that are going to lead to recovery so that you're having higher quality workouts. And it's a long game. There's no finish line. You're thinking about 80 years old in writing. And yeah. what helps with that is doing concentration training. And that is the chapter on psychological lobotomy. And there's formal and informal practice of concentration training. And that is a concrete skill people can practice every day to learn to be curious and amused and find humor in how the mind goes in all these different directions that within a 10-minute period of time, you say, no, I'm going to walk for five miles instead of run, ride for 50. And then two minutes later, you're on your bike. Or the weather's bad and your trainer's there and you go, I'm going to ride for an hour. And before you know it, it's four hours. Now, to prevent that requires sitting and doing concentration training, which looks like meditation, to be detached from those thoughts that take hold that you become a slave to. Well, can you give us you one example? Like, I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with this idea of meditation and not trying to not have any thoughts, just concentrating on my breath. And when thoughts come in, you you just let them go right back out. Uh, how would you describe this concentration training? Okay, the way I describe concentration training at first with athletes is it is the only way to learn to get into the zone. Okay, we as athletes have all experienced being into the zone and it's so intoxicating. I know it was one of the things that kept me coming back as an athlete because when I was in the zone, it was just magical and euphoric. However, I look at the zone on a one to 10 scale, 10 being pure zone, the moon and the stars align. When you are cycling, you don't feel pain. You just can keep your cadence going. You feel light, you feel strong. One, you're better off staying at home. So concentration training slash meditation is a way to increase your level of zoneness. And as I have athletes practice concentration training, I have them monitor their level of being in the zone in their workouts on and off the bike, in the pool, out of the pool. They monitor their level of zoneness when they are doing bands, when they are stretching. Okay, so that's where it all starts. It's a performance enhancement technique. So when somebody is doing flexibility training and stretching, which is usually cumbersome, boring, mundane, you think about yoga or the way a ballerina stretches, that is essential 
to their performance. So when you're stretching your hamstring, your eyes are closed and you're breathing in and out of that muscle group, feeling those muscle fibers release, holding that stretch for 20 to 30 seconds, which will feel like an eternity. And if a 10 was painful, you're stretching to a six or a seven. It should not be uncomfortable. And there's a physiological reason because of certain things in the muscle fibers. And then you release, you feel the muscle fibers contract, blood flow into that muscle group. The muscle group gets warm. Then you lean into it again, breathe in and out. All your focus is on that muscle group. You start thinking about this text or this errand you have to do. You go back to that muscle group. I see. Hold it for 20 to 30 seconds, and you're developing your concentration muscle, your ability to focus on the task at hand. And you're doing that with bands. You're doing that with weights. And then that's informal practice. Formal practice is when you're sitting in a chair at home the same time every day for a certain period of time with your eyes closed, focused on a word or a phrase because meditation is not emptying your mind. It's being able to observe thoughts because they will come in. It's like refocusing going, no, I am going to shop and cook great dinner for the family tonight and only work out for an hour. And you get these other thoughts going, that's weak, that's failure, you know, just order out. And you're able to go, oh, that's interesting. Huh. Those are my gremlins. Those are my demons. Those are my gummy bears, as I call them in the chapter, gummy bears sticking together. And they're not true. They're a story. They're fiction. They're a lie coming out of insecurity and inadequacy. Yeah, I've heard that described as like, I've heard that described as uh, surfing the wave uh, in in a somewhat different context. Um, But it sounds very similar, like when you have a feeling of, I want to get up and go get something to eat, but you know, you're not hungry. You just let that feeling come and you notice it and then you let it go. It it sounds very similar. Yeah. In the addiction and recovery movement in relapse prevention, they call it urge surfing. Ah, okay. Terry or um, Terry Gorski in the eighties has a a book on relapse prevention. So people that are trying to lose weight, you know, and the piece of pie or the brownies calling them. And they realize that if you resist that urge or craving for a certain amount of time, it will go away. Okay. So for, for any kind of addiction, and they're starting to use that with kids with screen addiction, there's actually programs for people that have screen addiction and kids. There's one here in Boulder. So when we're talking about that urge to say, if you're running and I've known people that have said, I'm going to run Sinitas twice Uh and they run it twice and they feel great. They get to the bottom and it's saying, no, just one more time one more time. And it is like cocaine. I mean, you get a dopamine hit like no other. And the idea of going back and playing Legos with the kids is boring compared to running Sunitas again. So they have to take a few deep breaths, walk around and be curious and not let this voice take hold and go, there's next week. I so they get to learn time. that the voice is not, they don't have to listen to the voice. They can, they can just hear it, but not do what the voice says. Right. The brain is the master. And it's about not letting you become the slave to, I mean, you are the master, but there's a point you're, unhealthy ego will become the master and you become the slave. And what we're talking about is unhealthy ego. When it comes to competitive athletes, you actually lose your mind. You cut back on recovery time. You skip your massage. You don't use your foam roller at night. You cut back on your sleep. You don't eat clean. You're not hydrating enough. Your sugar intake is too much. You're not tapering before the race. Yes. You're not Good. using visualization training. You know, um, those are all things that require achieving your North Star, that require 
keeping track of, like you keep track of your heart rate. You download your information every day. You have to keep track in your warrior journal. I call it your warrior journal. And there's a appendix on how to design a warrior journal where you're writing down and monitoring all these kinds of things that you're doing, not just the X's and O's. I did this many reps. I did this many sets. I went this distance, but you're monitoring these, whatever you want to call them, gremlins, demons, um, impulses, but you're looking at them in a positive, fun, playful way. This is fun stuff. This isn't, you know, hard work because these have a positive they mean well. They want you to feel good about yourself. They want you to feel accomplished. They yeah. want longevity. So they're not all bad, but there's a point they push too much, and that's finding the sweet spot with awareness and doing the things that I'm talking about that you have to keep track of. And that's where the point I made, you can't do this alone, and you don't have to do this alone if you're on the migraine end of the continuum, because you have to be talking about this to be doing the mental reps yeah. to change this mental habit. And you were talking about this as bad as habits. And so they became habits because you had a positive reinforcement. There was some reward for it. And that's why this that part of your brain is wanting you to do it again because you want that reward. So maybe this journaling and maybe some of the other things you're going to talk about are a way to try to replace that reward with something else so you can create this new habit. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I can continue or I can um, tell a short story so your listeners don't think um, I'm living in a glass house. All right, go ahead. You know, I started playing ice hockey at age three. My career ended at 19. Um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I did not want to leave the locker room because that was the last time I would leave the locker room as a competitive athlete. I stayed in there for four hours, long oh. after everybody left, crying my eyes out, laying on the floor sobbing wow. for fear of what I was going to do the next day at three o'clock who I was going to be. I didn't have a jersey to wear. I didn't have a jacket to wear. My self-esteem was solely based on being an athlete because of the attention I got from it. I was very good at it. And I left my equipment in the locker room because I was afraid that it felt like a death. So I left the locker room and went straight to the pepper mill, which was a bar. And I don't remember the rest of it. And I had been drinking and using drugs since the age of 13, but it, it, it increased at that time, as you could imagine, and that's yeah. another story. So anyhow, years later, I get into a league. I'm 31 years old, have no business really pushing like you're talking about riding hard, and I put myself in a position I never should have, and I tore discs in my back. I'm oh. laying face down on the ice. My legs are numb. I can't get up, oh. and I finally get up and keep trying to play oh. and realize I can't. So it's getting to the point, I can't push the clutch in the car <laughs> because my leg is so numb. And I'm in North Boulder Park trying to run sprints hmm. like that. I know this. I know this. I can feel this. When I talk to people about this, I can say things and they can look at me like, you're reading my mind. Yeah. There is so much exhilaration and bliss and euphoria of transcending pain, fatigue, uh, feeling lazy, wanting to procrastinate. There is nothing like it on the face of the earth, in my opinion, um, as a competitive athlete. So this... Um, takes work. You can call it a habit um, and you train to develop these other muscles. Okay. And one of these other muscles involves saying, I need help with this because uh -huh. those three words, I need help are probably the three most difficult words, people that are competitive or type A or man-like from the horse and the man short story can say right you know like you're you finished a race and you felt you were horrible 
I mean, your legs felt like lead. You got dropped and you just want to cry or crawl into a hole. Okay. But you want to do revenge trading training. <laughs> that means the next week really get after it to prevent that won't happen again. And from an exercise physiology standpoint or a coach's standpoint, that's the worst thing that you can do. Hmm. So having guidance from a coach is very important as well, because what we're talking about, the physical and the mental collide. And I can't speak to the coaching part, but a lot of the people that I work with, I refer to their coach to say, hey, what is your training program going to be like? Because left to your own devices, you're going to want to do more because you feel like you did a wrong and you want to right a wrong. Yeah. You know? Um, so having help from others to talk about feeling like you are weak, um, you, maybe you should quit because a lot of times there's black and white thinking, yes. you know, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. However, from a sports psychology gold medal mind perspective, it's all grist for the mill. You sit back with a curious mind going, wow, how do I give this thing called cycling so much power to wreak havoc on my heart and soul? This oh. is unbelievable. You know, oh. this needs some reflection. Right. You know, and, and that's something to be curious about because sport can do that. Yeah. And you're saying that you having know, somebody, uh, a teammate, a spouse, uh, a coach, uh, or, or even in extreme cases like someone like yourself, to talk to about that and to hold you to what you've said you're going to do, you're saying that's very helpful. Oh, essential. I mean, I can get into describing Mark because he's three standard deviations from what we're talking about. I mean, he will make a lot of the people we're talking about because after five brain surgeries, four months after that, he did a 24 hour triathlon. Um, this oh. guy's an ex Marine and he was my guy. He was my go-to guy to help me get through this. And I could say to him, you know, easy for you to say, but I knew what he went through. And this guy is one of the most humble, sincere, genuine guys that came face to face with death and appreciated life and could take sport, take it or leave it, hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, you know, we sat in coffee shops or went for walks along Boulder Creek while I bawled my eyes out, you know, and he could give me hugs and, um, lift me up. Um, like nobody else could when I felt the world was coming to an end. Um, so it's, it's so, it, it's so, so important because, um, especially in endurance sports, you know, it, you're training together, you compete together if you're on a team, but you're really, it's so low, you know, uh, you're, you're alone. You know, there's not a locker room after practice where there's this banter and, um, you know, kidding around where you at least develop a brotherhood or a sisterhood with some of the guys that, you know, afterwards you're going out to eat with or having yeah. a beer or in the car with talking about, oh my God, I feel like I'm getting my butt kicked, you know? Um, you know, that was that was horrible. I, I feel like quitting, you know, so that social support piece is huge. And that's what's so impressive to me about Michaela Schifrin, you know, and yes, after the second run, she skied out of she sat there for 20 minutes and NBC tortured her by keeping the camera on her. But hey, let's face it. If it was me, I would have sat there for two days. Yeah you know, back in my career, but you listen to her on interviews and what she's saying. I mean, she's handling this with grace. Yeah. You know, I mean, talk about having this uh, in perspective for some, yeah. to some degree, and you know, for somebody who's so young. Oh my gosh. You know, I mean, she went pro at 15 and is one of the most accomplished skiers on the face of the earth. And people are making it a tragedy that she's not going to go home without a medal. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's the mentality, yeah. you know, and then if we're been athletes for a long time, we take that in. 
So we have those journalists or announcers in our own head that say, you're mentally weak if you don't do this race. Right. You know, I work with people um, that run the Boulder Boulder that get mono or get pneumonia a few weeks before or have strep throat. Yeah. And they are coming apart going, I know I shouldn't do this, but I feel so embarrassed. And you right. would think it's a simple decision. Right. You'd you think. Know, but, but, but that's the intensity, you know, and in the air in Boulder, it's just in the air. It's bouncing off the flat irons, you know, and, you know, bouncing off the Tetons and back going, no, you can rest tomorrow, yeah. you know. But these things that I'm talking about allow for a dose of ibuprofen to treat that migraine headache, but it doesn't have to be work. It doesn't have to be a grind. It should be fun. It should become part of the sport to right. develop emotionally as well as physically. Well, some of the people listening to us right now are wanting to do this. And so we've said, North Star, you got to have a goal. And it's helpful to have somebody or people to talk to and help you and hold you accountable to you doing the things that are right for you accomplishing your goal. Um, and then the concentration training where when you're doing your uh, recovery work and, and perhaps there's other things that you do this concentration training in where you're not letting your mind wander and you're thinking about lots of different, you're focusing on the muscle that you're stretching or whatever it is that you're doing. What else can they do? These, these people who want to be better at this. Um, one of the things would be to go through the workbook. So I wrote the book and then I wrote the workbook that has a chapter that corresponds with every chapter in the book that allows for deeper reflection. It involves, it involves doing mental reps to be able to shift. This is a horrible way to put it, but people can relate to it. Change neural pathways in the okay. brain that allow them to have psychological muscle memory to yeah. make this idea of doing moderation and thinking about being 80 and riding and getting rid of the fears that, oh, if I don't put this many miles in, I'm going to gain five pounds. So you give know, me an, or if an I example had, of this rep idea. I know what a rep is, but in this context... It's sitting down and answering the questions in the workbook, pen and paper, and reading the question and writing the answer down. So like, it is what's one of the bring... questions? Because we don't have the workbook here in front of us. Uh, where's the workbook? Or, or maybe you do. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's right here. Let me, let me grab it if it's... Or I, I don't even have to grab it. I, I mean, I, I know this stuff. Um, I don't, my perfectionism doesn't have to get in the way. So, you know, so in the, in, in the preface, I talk about, okay, what is it about you that makes five ring fever so strong? And that's and the five Olympic ring fever. Yeah, that's the, the symbol for the Olympics. And I worked for the Olympic Committee on two different occasions. And we okay. used to talk about five ring fever and how even at that level, most people would be caught up into the medal count and being on the podium three years before the Olympics and not focused on, okay, what am I going to do today to get there? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you walk into the visitor center, you walk into the cafeteria and our job as sports psychologists was to bring them back to today. And if you had a bad workout today, what do you do to make it better tomorrow? Uh -huh. Okay. Uh -huh. So we're talking about people, you know, they're not in the Olympics, but they are so attached to perfectionism and making every workout count and they're only feeling as good as their last workout. Uh -huh. So they're answering these questions like, what is that all about? You know, when did this start for you? Uh -huh. If you didn't have five ring fever, what would be there? Uh -huh. Like if you were a person that wasn't so driven by this, what would be there? Would you be an empty shell? Would there be a gaping hole inside? Would you just feel like a dried up leaf blowing away around in the wind? Would you feel invisible? You know, because your significance 
is based upon this. And that is really scary. That's an emotional Achilles heel because if you do get significantly injured, you're in a house of cards. And so when we talk about reps, is it like answering these questions again and again over time, or is it more just different questions, but having a discipline of thinking about this stuff? Um, it's answering the questions in the preface, in the intro, in chapter one, in chapter two, those are the mental reps. You go into your sports psychology gym, which requires you taking time every week, just like you schedule in physical training time, you schedule in gold medal mind time. And ideally, you're doing that with somebody else that is doing the workbook to talk about the questions. Uh, together. Gotcha. This is one of the reasons this summer I'm going to do a gold medal mine training camp and guide people through the workbook because it's so hard to do it on your own. I mean, like people have so many self-help books on their nightstand and they're I like, oh, I didn't read this one. I didn't read I, this one. I mean, I it's just it. so, so common. I, I think what you mean by reps is is not so much the actual like reps, meaning doing repetitions, but rather just having the discipline to include psychological training as a part of their routine. Right, right. And in and, and doing something. So, for example, when it comes to concentration training, it can be daunting to think I'm going to sit 20 minutes every day, you know, with my eyes closed. I mean, for most people, the only time they spend time with their eyes closed is when they're sleeping. Yeah. yeah. Okay? And people will say, well, I don't have time for this. And I ask, how much is your screen time? Okay. This is ripping you off from learning yeah. to turn your mind into a friend, an ally, a weapon. Yeah, Doug is shaking he, his smartphone at, at the camera, which nobody can see, but uh, Glenn and I. For some people, I have them give their phone a name. Like, this is Wilma. <laughs> this is Wilma. You can't, drive, you can't drive 20 minutes without looking at Wilma. You're afraid you're going to miss something. That is concerning because driving can be one of the most beautiful places to meditate. You turn the music off. You turn your podcast off. You enjoy feeling your back against the chair, your foot on the gas pedal. When you're at a red light, you take your foot off. You look out at the mountains. You breathe in deeply through your nose, out slowly through your mouth. You yeah. relax your neck and shoulders. You use driving as a time to actually get into the zone. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, can, Doug, you gotta, you're really pressing on a sore spot here for me. I, I have, I mean, when I was telling you about meditation, I'm no meditating expert. I, I did buy a tape once and I listened to it uh -huh. and I, I meditated. <laughs> And I, I, like five years after I bought the tape, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't bring myself to do it. So, but I did it one time and it was a stunning experience. It, it was profound. And I thought I had no idea that it would be that powerful. I'm going to do this a lot. And then I didn't do it again for five more years. <laughs> and then I did it again. And it was like, wow, this is great. I am going to do this every day. And I put it on my calendar, you know, I, I was going to do a little bit of meditation. And, and then I didn't do it again for five more years. And so there, there is some problem in my mind, I suppose, like a lot of people you're just, you're saying where we can't, we just don't have this. I can go into the gym and I can lift weights and I can never miss a workout lifting weights or riding my bike. But when it comes time to exercise my psychology, I've got nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, that little arena is the same thing that plays out with the bike and going to extremes on the bike. Yeah. So when you think of listening to Headspace or Calm or your meditation, the first thing your brain does is that stupid I don't have time. I'll do it tomorrow. What is this going to do for me? You know, it is the exact same thing the mind does. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Apollo Ono, who wrote the foreword to the book Gold Medal Mind, has won eight um, Olympic uh, medals, more medals than any winter athlete. I can say 
uh, this publicly because he's been public about my work with him. I worked with him for two and a half years. I was on the ice with him three days a week. Um, the first thing I did when I worked with him, when he came to my office, we went to the weight room and I showed him how to lift weights to meditate to use weightlifting as a form of meditation. He talks about this in his autobiography, Zero Regrets, that huh. came out in 2010. And I have a chapter in my book called Moving Steel, and it talks uh. about using weightlifting as a form of meditation. So meditation doesn't have to be just sitting still like some Buddhist with your eyes closed. It can okay. be like I'm talking about when you're driving, when you're stretching, when you're using bands, moving steel, I mean, lifting weights, because if you think about a weightlifter, that is as good as it gets. That's mm -hmm. as fancy as it gets. So, um, and all athletes I talk to, I go to the gym if I can with them. I don't tell them how many reps and what exercises that's outside of my, uh, above my pay grade and mm -hmm. outside of my scope of practice, but how to focus that way. But this is the most common thing. This is why Headspace is a billion dollar app but when they track the compliance, people buy it and for a few weeks and then it drops off by 80%. Sure. You know, it's like, I don't have time for this nonsense. And I, I won't get into all this research, but it's no dr different than drinking water and breathing oxygen. This idea of sitting still. And if you can get into the habit and what I do with people in the spirit of having fun and making it easy, 10 minutes, the same time every day, listen to instrumental music. So no lyrics, close your eyes, focus on the keyboard, focus on the violin, focus on the guitar. When your mind wanders, not if, when, bring it back to the music. Right. When your mind wanders, bring it back to the music. There's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. There's no victory or uh, defeat. If there was something as defeat, it would be when your mind wandered and started thinking about how you had a bad ride earlier in the day, it would be indulging in that thought uh -huh. and how much time you spent in that thought, as opposed to that thought being a reminder to come back to you, the music. Uh -huh. And that is one of the most powerful ways to handle pain and fatigue when you're on a bike. And that's in the chapter, No Leroy. Uh -huh. And there's eight ways to handle pain and fatigue because that's part and parcel of the mental side of uh, endurance sports. And that's what it was with speed skating. So a big percentage of our time was how do you handle um when lactate is squirting out of your ears and your yeah. eyeballs and your legs feel like they're going to fall off, just, just like in cycling. So that's how you just start out, you know, or you get someplace that you're going 10 minutes early. Um, you put instrumental music on your radio, you close your eyes and you listen to the music when your mind, when your mind wanders, you bring it back and you develop this mental control to be able to come back to center where, let's just say this is not the greatest way, logic, reason, security, adequacy, wholeness can be developed. That you're not giving so much power to five ring fever or vanity fair lifestyle or significance contingent upon how you're riding. Great. So this exercise, this mental exercise sounds, because we keep coming back to it, sounds like it is central to being able to get control over these whispering, you know, for lack of a better word, voices that are in your head. Um, without a question, this is how I got involved in sports psychology at the age of 13. I read a book that had a script for progressive muscle relaxation, and I yeah. came home from school every day. In 45 minutes, I listened to this thing at the age of 13. And what I'm talking about, they teach in couples therapy where anger or impatience or irritability or agitation is a problem. They teach the people, the couple, this skill, because it's the only way to maintain composure and develop a sense of calm so they can learn to respond to the other person and not react. Right. 
They right. can learn to listen as opposed to manufacturing what they're going to think before they even hear what the other person's saying. And that happens interpersonally. That happens within ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So being able to maintain that composure and having these voices going, oh, well, so-and-so thinks I didn't do this or I dropped out of. Recently, there was this race that went from like New Mexico up to Canada. Um I forgot what it was called. I mean, it was like 800 miles and, you know, you just slept 20 minutes at a time every now Holy and cow. then. Like along the I Rocky mean, Mountain, the it's Continental Divide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you went up. It was, I forgot how how many days and how many miles. And I worked with a few people that did that. And oh, yeah. they use these bikes where everything you have is on that, that, that bike. And you ride that off-road, on-road, rain, snow, sleet, and hail, you know, kind of thing. And um, you have to, you know, there's days you're going, I'm going to die. Or why am I doing this? It's just like the Leadville 100 or the URA 100, you know. So you're having to maintain composure. You're having to go down in your body. um, And this can be applied to so many different situations. And I don't mean to say it's the panacea, but... I can tell you, if you get in the habit of doing this every day for 30 days, and if you miss a day, you don't beat up on yourself, you just get back with it, you will find you miss it. You miss it. I'm going to do it. I am going to do it. I'm not going to go five (laughs) years like the last time. I'm going to do this. Thank you for that. Doug, we have uh, about a minute left. What last little bit of information would you share here? And then once again, would you tell our audience how they can find you if they have more questions or want to know more? Okay. Um, To find me, just Google Doug Jowdy, J-O-W-D-Y, and you'll come to my two websites and you can email me through the contact tab. And if you're interested in this gold medal mind um, training camp, um, let me know. When is that going to be? Uh, that's going to be this summer, you know. I'm going to meet every other Is that an in-person thing week. or a virtual thing? Um, ideally, I want to do it in person for people that are on the front range, you know. And okay. uh, there's no substitute for in person because part of it is sitting in a big circle, having interaction, right. and people talking right. to each other about these issues. Right. Um, I, I have people that want to do it virtually, but I want to do this summer because kids are off of school and I work with a lot of kids, but uh, it's not age dependent. I mean, everybody that has this mindset can relate to each other. And I think kids can benefit from adults. Adults can benefit from kids, even right. though they're in different seasons of life. So that's one of um, the things. There's audio recordings on the website, on the products tab of the guided concentration training of the guided visualization of the progressive muscle relaxation that help um, direct you um, because it's hard. You need training wheels at first with this. And although in the last thing and the soundbite is this is meant to be fun. This is not meant to be a grind. This is meant to be amusing. This is meant to be enjoyable. Um, sport can lose that when it gets competitive and it gets to be intense. This mental side, and you'll see I reinforce this throughout the entire book, this gold medal mind aspect of sport is meant to be fun. Right. It, there but should be laughs. It sure there, better there be. Should, I'm not going to do it if it's not yeah. fun. <laughs> it, it should be so fun. I mean – you know, people come into my locker room, my office, and they expect me, you know, because I've worked with Apollo Ono and these Olympic athletes, I'm going to be this intense guy that's going to talk about, you know, winning. I mean, we're laughing right out of the gates because when you're in a good mood, when you're having fun, when you're enjoying, you're performing at a higher level. And most people that come into my locker room are burned out, angry, scared, um, discouraged, and they have lost the fun. Their sport has become a torture chamber where once it was the happy place in their life. Ah, yes. I can see that. And I'll get all of that into the show notes. And it's in the show notes from the previous episode, which I'll also put a link to uh, in the show notes mm-hmm. for this episode 
Doug, thank you very much. Glenn, thank you. Good to see you again. You guys have a great day. Thank you, Joe. All righty. Thanks. Much appreciation. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Dr. Doug Jowdy. If you missed episode 60, you should definitely listen into that talk with Dr. Jowdy as well. And I hope you'll stay tuned for the next episode with Dr. Jowdy, which will be about food and eating disorders common to the fitness community and how we can get control. You can find more information about Dr. Jowdy and his book, The Gold Medal Mind, in the show notes. And while you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.